Kathy and I have the great joy of traveling into different churches, into different contexts, and we're seeing God do some amazing things. I was telling some pastors just the other day, we've just been in Northern Ireland, where we've seen God doing some amazing work in a vineyard church in Coleraine, where they've seen over a thousand responses to the gospel in the last 110 days. Listen, if salvation doesn't make you happy, please go home. Really. Why bother, right? God's on the move. We were, we were doing a teaching in a little village just outside of Coleraine where they have one of their um, site meetings and um, it was quite wild. God just really broke in and... I was just sharing how God's been healing a number of people with uh, deaf ears. And uh, as I was sharing this, this drunk man walks in off the street. And he wasn't drunk on the Holy Spirit. He was drunk on some other stuff. And uh, walks in off the back of the street, makes a massive commotion at the back as he's sitting down. And uh, at the end of the meeting, we discovered that the reason why he was making a massive commotion is as he walked in and was listening to the stories of people getting healed, he suddenly realized that his deaf ear had popped open. And at the end of that meeting, he responded to the love of Jesus. It's wonderful. God's on the move. We're living in a season where it's easy for God to do amazing things. People have often said to me, wouldn't you have loved to be alive in the days of people like John G. Lake and Jonathan Edwards? Um, and, and I often say no. I, I wouldn't because God's doing a whole lot more than he ever has done. Uh, there, there are more Christians now living on the face of the earth uh, with greater opportunity to extend the gospel and see his kingdom come. And uh, we're just hearing story after story, even in England and Europe. God's on the move. We were in Holland, we were in the city um, of Maastricht, and we saw a little kid, he's eight years old, as we were praying for healing, he bolts out the room, starts running around the building, comes in after a few laps, and promptly announces to his parents, I've just been healed of my asthma. We're living in days where God is wanting to do amazing things, where healing is the children's bread. It's what we're learning to feast on. It's what we're learning to live in. And one of the things I've noticed is that many people don't quite know how to enjoy an ongoing encounter with God. And so they have to wait for the man of God to come into a meeting before they get to enjoy God's presence. And God is doing some incredible things. And I want to encourage you tonight, if you uh, are hungry, God wants to meet with you. You know, the Bible promises that the hungry get fed. (laughs) The Bible promises us that the hungry get satisfied. And something has to stir in our hearts again of a hunger for him and his presence. Amen. When you turn in your Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter... 3 and verses um, 9, in fact, sorry, verses 10. Indeed, in this case, what once had glory has come to have no glory at all because of the glory that surpasses it. For if what was being brought to an end came with glory, much more will what is permanent have glory. 
Since we have such a hope, we are very bold, not like Moses who would put a veil over his face so that the Israelites might gaze, might not gaze on the outcome of what was being brought to an end. But their minds were hardened, for to this day, when they read the old covenant, that same veil remains unlifted, because only through Christ is it taken away. Yes, to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts. But when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is? You guys said that like English people. I need you to do it like Scotsman. Can you do that? I need some William Wallace crazy berserk looking, I'm going to take someone apart voice. Can you do that? Where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is? Whoa. That was impressive. And we all with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. We are living in these days where God is pouring out His Spirit in an incredible way. And God wants everyone to enjoy it. There's no one who needs to be excluded. There's no one who needs to be left out. There's no one who needs to miss out on what God is doing. Everyone is invited to the party. I love that the kingdom motif is not simply one that um, is boring and a, a bit predictable, but the kingdom motif is always about celebration, wine, and feasting. I love that. It's supposed to mean that the church is really supposed to be quite happy. I'll move on quickly. Um <laughs> And where we're living in days that God is so eager to touch people. And I've found in, in, in our travels that many people uh, know how to come into an encounter with God. They know how to enjoy the sense of the presence of God. But they don't quite know how to maintain and replicate and increase that encounter that they have with God. And so they're able to come to meetings like these, encounter God, have a, a, a nice touch from the Holy Spirit, but they don't quite know what to do and how to take that home with them and how to increase that. Um, and the reality is in every move of God, in every encounter of God, in its DNA is an ability for increase and multiplication. No revival was ever meant to end. Uh, and revival has in its DNA increase because the kingdom of God is expressed in increase, never in decrease. We understand that we live in a tension of what's called the kingdom now and not yet. In other words, we know that God's kingdom has been inaugurated and has come in the person of Jesus, don't we? But we also know that there's still more for us that's coming. And sometimes when we don't see the kinds of breakthroughs or the kinds of healings that we want, we lean into an understanding of the kingdom, not yet. That, that we're expecting sooner or later God's going to break in. But we've often used that as an excuse for our lack of power. When the reality somewhere in this tension of now and not yet is an increase. Because the Bible says of his government and of his kingdom there will be no end. And so we're to expect more of God today than we were yesterday. It means that my relationship with him is an ever-increasing expression of his goodness toward me. I am the recipient, I am the target point of his goodness. Man, that's good preaching. (laughs) And so are you. 
You are the target point of his goodness and it's supposed to increase, not decrease. We need to break the spirit of poverty that often holds people in their thinking that says, oh, oh blessing is for everyone else. I'll get, a bu- I'll get by with my reused tea bags. There's goodness to enjoy. And I find that many Christians can come into an encounter, but they don't know how to multiply that encounter. They don't know how to increase that encounter. It's kind of like Saul, King Saul in the Bible. He hangs out with prophets, and he's able to prophesy like the prophets. He comes into an atmosphere, he comes under an atmosphere, and he begins to take on the characteristics of that atmosphere. But when he leaves that atmosphere, he cannot multiply or regenerate that atmosphere where he is. So he has to call David to come in to create his atmosphere around Saul and bring peace to him. Uh, Because you see, very often, uh, many Christians don't realize that actually the reality that governs their internal life is the reality that will govern their external life. In other words, what you are most aware of, the kingdom you are most aware of, is the kingdom you will most reflect. And so if we're to come into an ever-increasing encounter, we need to understand that we have to change the way we think concerning God's kingdom. We have to change the way we think concerning his glory because his glory is meant to increase in our lives, not decrease. (laughs) And I love Moses because Moses is a cheeky Jew. I mean, he, he comes, to G, comes to the Father and he says to the Father, listen, if I find favor in your sight, and, and, and I know I have, if I find favor in your sight, reveal your glory to me so I can get some more favor. For those of you who don't like asking God for things, permission is granted to ask him for as much favor as you want. And Moses says, give me some more of your favor. And God says to Moses, do you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to hide you in the cleft of a rock. And I'm going to walk past you and my glory is going to be revealed. And you will see the back of me because you cannot see my face for no man can see my face and live. And the revelation that Moses gets when God walks past him, when, when, when Moses peeks and sees where God just was, is the goodness of God manifested. His revelation is that the Lord is good, slow to anger, rich and abounding in love. And it's incredible, Moses goes up this mountain and he has an encounter after encounter with God. And I love, I love the people of Israel. They say to Moses, why don't you go up for us? I, I know churches like that. <laughs> no, no, we'll just send the leaders up. They can get the glory for us. They can get the stuff for us and then they can give it to us. When God's inviting you up in the, up to the mountain, God invited the people of Israel up to the mountain. It wasn't just Moses. Everyone could have gone. And God's inviting you up the mountain. And thank God it's not Mount Sinai, it's Mount Zion, the mountain of grace. Because you see, Moses' encounter was based in a legalistic relationship, in a relationship that was based on do's and don'ts, in a relationship that was based on if you perform, you'll get the blessing. And so the glory that was on him began to fade because he could not maintain or increase that glory through his own hard work. 
And so Paul is writing to the Corinthian church to help them understand the difference between two covenants. One that came with incredible glory, but it was fading because no one could maintain it. And the other that comes with incredible grace that reveals glory because Jesus comes as one who reveals God's glory. And you see, for many of us, we, we, we have moves of God's spirit and we think that visitation is the norm. That God just wants to visit us when the truth is God's not looking to visit your church. He's looking to live in your church. He's looking to tabernacle. He's looking for a habitation. And the problem with habitation is it's inconvenient. You've got to rearrange the furniture. You've got to do things differently because you have to host someone 24-7. And it's coming. We understood that church is not for the lost. Worship is not for the lost. Worship is for God. And then our our services should not be called services because we're not servicing anything. We're meeting with God. And our people that lead the meeting should not be called anchors. That is the problem most of the time. Because they just anchor everything. Nothing goes anywhere. But that we are the hosts of his presence. And that first and foremost, our gathering is to him. And the overflow and overspill is people get saved. People are encouraged. People are edified. The church grows and there's maturity. But our coming together is for him. And very often, churches encounter outpourings of the Holy Spirit. And what we do is we build our little regulations and our rules around that in order to try and contain what God is doing, rather than understanding our wineskins and our structures need to increase what God is doing, not contain what he's doing. And when you begin to build with man's wisdom or man's structure, or my, a man's uh, ability to try and contain something and go, well, listen, you know, in 1994 when the Toronto blessing or the Father's blessing was moving, that was good for then. Now we're going to build differently. As if there's a different God that moved in 94 to now. Or if there's a different river that's flowing. <laughs> I'll move on. And we, we put our little structures, well, this is how we do things here because, you know, we do believe in the Holy Spirit. We're open to the Holy Spirit. Openness doesn't get you anywhere unless you walk through the jolly door. You can be as open. Imagine I said to my wife, I'm open to loving you. <laughs> she punched me in the head. But we're open to the Holy Spirit. Openness doesn't get you anywhere. Leaning into your lover. Leaning into the one that you long for gets you somewhere. And we put our little rules and our regulations. Listen, I remember as a young boy, as he was a young teenager, thinking I'm going to be the next Smith Wigglesworth. Hallelujah. It's going to be incredible. Signs, wonders, miracles, raising the dead. It's going to be awesome. And I read every kind of thing on Smith Wigglesworth. He's like still one of my heroes. It's amazing. And I remember reading a bit where it says that you wake up at four o'clock to break bread and pray. And so I think, aha, that's the key to his power. Four o'clock in the morning, grumpy Julian wakes up thinking, sweet Jesus, surely this is not a breakthrough moment for me, but I'm going to press through because I want the power. So I'm praying at four o'clock in the morning, half falling asleep, 
I'm breaking bricks and I'm doing all the stuff that I need to do at four o'clock in the morning. Well, by the time 10 o'clock came, I was so grumpy. It was unbelievable. I was not displaying any fruits of the Holy Spirit to anybody. And I was probably doing more damage in the kingdom than I was bringing life to it. Why? Because any rules or regulations around my relationship with him causes the glory to fade. You see, his glory is the express manifestation of his goodness in Jesus. And God wants to expressly manifest his glory in your life, not dependent on what you can offer him, but totally dependent on the finished work of Jesus Christ. And the covenant that we've entered into is a covenant of glory. And if the covenant of glory was powerful for Moses, where there are clouds that he walked into, where there's lightnings and thunderings, where the glory of God is made manifest in such an awesome way, that if under that moment he could have that, how much more can we have now? That if, if Moses' face could shine with the glory of God, even though it was fading, What's it going to be like when we begin to encounter him in a very real way that begins to be sustained, that begins to uh, change our life, and then we begin to live in the rarefied atmosphere of heaven? Because you're seated there. You're seated in heavenly places. It's not just a theoretical, theological thing. It's an experiential reality that you get to live from heaven to earth. But we're so busy putting our rules and regulations. The problem with legalism is it does nothing to change your heart. It might change your behavior, but it doesn't change your heart. And Paul's arguing for this very thing here. He's saying, Moses' covenant came with a measure of glory, but I want you to know this new covenant of grace comes with an experience of glory that's ever-increasing, that's never meant to end. I don't know about you, but I want to live in that reality. I want to live in the reality of ever-increasing glory. I want to live in the reality of an unfolding and increasing encounter of His goodness. Man alive, that's good. And you're waiting for the five steps to ever increasing glory, aren't you? But you're not going to get it. Because the reality of this is about wasting time on the one that you love. It's about wasting time, not because you have to, but because your heart is lovesick for Him. That there's something in you that says, I must enjoy Him more. I must get closer to him. There's something about who he is and the goodness that he portrays. It's why, it's why tax collectors and prostitutes and sinners like hanging out with him. Who likes hanging out with you? (laughs) There's an ever increasing glory to encounter. And for many Christians, what we do is we get saved. And we get freed up from all of that legalism and rubbish and we're now joined to Jesus. The Bible says that I am in its, uh, uh, irrevocably joined to Jesus. There's no way we could separate. It's like I'm a Siamese twin with Jesus and we share the same heart. 
There's no way I can be separate from him because the Bible says in Galatians that as he died, we died. As he was resurrected, so we were resurrected. As he was ascended, so we're ascended. As he is seated, so we're seated. All in Christ Jesus. That's very powerful when you realize that because you begin to understand your whole identity has been changed to live in the realm of glory. It's why the Bible says, for all have sinned and fallen short of God's glory. But when you get saved, guess what you're restored to? You're restored to his glory. You see, the reality in the new covenant is that Moses only saw the back of God. We get to see his face now. The reality of the new covenant is that Adam and Eve had God walking with them. But in the new covenant, we have God walking in us. It's better. It's far more superior. And we, we, we've been joined to him. But what often happens is, in Romans, it's explained it so wonderfully using a marriage metaphor. And it says an incredible thing. It says, you were once married to the law. You were once married to the standards that God had, because the law is perfect. And imagine being married to someone who's perfect all the time, perfectly right about everything, and perfectly right about your wrongness. Some wives are going, I know how that feels. (laughs) Imagine being married like that to someone like that. That's what we were like. Like Every time we came close to the mountain, it revealed our weakness, it revealed our sin, it revealed who we were. But the beauty of the new covenant is that the Bible says someone has to die. Problem is that the law is going to live forever. And so we die to the law because we're joined to Christ and we're resurrected in him. And we're now joined to him and let no man put asunder what God is joined together. And the problem with the Christian church is we practice the sin of necromancy. We go back and dig up our dead corpse and look at it and say, look at how bad I am. And we approach Jesus from the wrong side of the cross as if we're still sinners, when actually God is called our saints. And the Bible calls that spiritual adultery. Because you can't be married to two people. You're either married to the law or you're married to Christ. We get, we're now married to Christ. And what we do is we go, hey Jesus, that's really cool. I'm going to go back to law to tell me what to do, to shape my behavior, to modify my actions. When God's called you to live in the reality of overcoming grace that transforms your heart. And this new covenant is a covenant of unveiled glory. Nothing is hidden. Because it's all revealed in Jesus. And as I behold him, I begin to be changed to look like him, to be like him. Because the reality is what you behold, you become like. And for many of us, we struggle with sin and deception and all of the junk that the world has to offer because that's what we're beholding. When God's called us to behold his glory, his goodness. And sometimes when we talk about the word glory, we think there's this cloud that's going to come in and reside. And that has happened and I've seen that. But that's not simply the fullness of the glory. The glory is about his gooey yummy, over-the-top, sweet, amazing, heavenly goodness. You've got to smile at least at that point, right? Because that was good. 
Right? I mean, that's, that's what heaven is all about. That's what his glory is all about. And as we behold him, we get changed from one degree of glory. It's not our legalistic attempts. It's our simplicity of being in him, with him, and gazing upon him. And everything changes. It's so liberating. You see, people ask me, Julian, what's the key to your prophetic gift? What's the key to the power? What's the key to all the miracles? I'm beholding. I'm beholding the one who's the miracle worker. I'm beholding the one who is the prophet of all prophets. I'm beholding the one who is the apostle of all apostles. And as I behold him, guess what I've become like? Brothers and sisters, you have an invitation to increase in encounter with God. And you know what the point is? Freedom. The whole reality of all of it is about radical freedom. You see, God's whole intention in salvation is outrageous, over-the-top freedom. That is good news. No, really, it is. I promise you it's good news. It is for freedom that Christ has set you free. Free people, free people. That's deep right there. Free people, free people. Hurt people, hurt people. The whole point of your salvation is to see a community, an apostolic people who are radically free to engage with his glory, to reveal his glory and to demonstrate his glory. And when Paul is writing to the apostolic community in Corinth, he's saying, this is what your salvation means. Freedom. Because where the spirit of the Lord is, there is Outrageous freedom. In South Africa, we have what's called a game park. And in a game park, there's a big fence around large land. And uh, there are loads of lions and giraffes and all that kind of stuff in there. And uh, most Christians understand that they've been freed from slavery, don't we? We're not under a slave uh, master. We're, We're free from that, aren't we? And what often happens is we come into our freedom and before we know it, there's a subtle form of, uh, of captivity that comes. And there's a difference between bondage and captivity. Bondage tells you what to do, when to do it, how to do it. Captivity simply puts a fence around you and says you can be who you are, but within the boundaries of this fence. And so the lion in a game park gets to be a lion. It gets to do what it wants, gets to roar, gets to eat meat, gets to hunt. But the minute it touches its nose up against the fence, it realizes that it's in captivity because there's an electric vault that shocks its body. And most Christians, well, firstly, they sometimes never ever realize that they're in captivity because they're not pioneering or pushing any boundaries. They're not enjoying their freedom. And so they live within a particular remit and never ever goes beyond that which they're used to or that which they're comfortable with. And for many, there are those who begin to enjoy their freedom and the minute they press through, they realize, hold on, I'm in captivity. When the point of your salvation is outrageous freedom. 
Because freedom looks like something. And I often talk about freedom culture, and I just want to end with this very quickly. What does it look like to be in a freedom culture? And if you get offended by this, God bless you, build a bridge, and get over it. Um, <laughs> you know you're in a freedom culture when perfection is not the aim, but delight is the aim. The whole point of your salvation is to delight in him. I am ridiculously addicted to happiness. I am addicted to joy. It's the most underrated form of strength. In fact, it's the only form of strength in the Bible. Joy that moves your faces. Freedom, it says that it's not about what I do, but it's about my pursuing him. It's about my journeying with him. Freedom looks like something. In, in a freedom culture, the issue is not your boundaries or what you're allowed to do. In a freedom culture, it's the privilege of what you get to do and the adventure that goes with it. Too many Christians are waiting for their orders from God. Tell me what to do. What am I allowed to do? He's going, I'm giving you permission to dream. I'm giving you permission to think outside the box. I'm giving you permission to pursue an adventure with me. He's relational. His sovereignty is not a restraining factor in your life. It's an empowering factor in your life. In a freedom culture, sin is, um, is, is not the massive issue. Some of you are going, yeah, I thought there was going to be a heresy coming somewhere. <laughs> Destiny is the issue. I love what a guy, Dan McCullum, says. He says, the lowest form of accountability is policing people's sin. The highest form of accountability it's calling destiny out of people. Yeah, you've got some issues. We all do. But you've got a pursuit. You've got destiny. You've got glory to encounter. I don't know about you, but that really does make me happy. In a freedom culture, oh, and this is going to be good. You're going to like this. In a freedom culture, Celebrating other people's victory is as good as celebrating your own. Because you realize that what one person gets, we all get. Just like that dear lady that got healed after five years of pain, it meant that there's an opportunity to press it in sick. Because we've seen some victory, it means we all get it now. <laughs> when last have you celebrated someone else's victory? As if it's your own. I get to pray for hundreds, if not thousands of people for healing, but struggle with sickness in my own body. And I celebrate their victory because sooner or later, the reality of heaven is going to break out on my body. Yes. And if he's done it for them, Jesus is going to do it for me. 
Freedom looks like something. Freedom produces childlike wonder and awe. When last have you been childlike? Because the receptivity of the kingdom and the posturing of the kingdom does not happen in political correctness or theological correctness. It happens in the context of childlikeness. God wants you to be childlike. Have you noticed childlike people have that starry eye gaze in their eyes? Have you ever seen a child when, when their dad does something pretty impressive, they're just like, oh my scone, that's amazing. <laughs> when last have you had those moments when you're looking at Jesus going, Amazing. You see, I, I, I'm a, I was a professional Pharisee once. I'm still getting rid of it. I'm a recovering professional Pharisee. And I could do all the stuff really well. I could preach well. I could prophesy well. I could hallelujah at the right point. I could say amen at the right point. I could theologize and argue my theological point really well. But I realized something when I read scripture or when I worship God, I lost the sense of awe and wonder of my papa. In a freedom culture, awe and wonder is the language. Awesome is like the word you use all the time. That's awesome. That's out of this world. That's overwhelming. It gives you the giggles when you're not supposed to be giggling because you're just so happy with him. Because you're in on your little secret with Papa. Some of you are looking at me as you say, you're a fruitcake, but we love you anyway. (laughs) Brothers and sisters, you've been invited into this reality. Are you enjoying your freedom? Because free people free people. Lastly, in a freedom culture, the previous generation's platform or previous generation ceiling becomes your platform. You see, the whole point that Jesus was illustrating in his life when he said, greater things will you do, is that his life was the model of what every other Christian should look like. We get to live on victories of a past generation that causes us to stand tall and expect more from God in this generation. Do you you realize what God has accomplished through the previous generation for us? We get to live in the full weight of that right now. Man alive. There's a whole lot more for us. There's a whole lot more for us. Because glory in its nature is ever increasing. This covenant that we live in, where we get to encounter him, 
It's not one that diminishes, but one that increases. And the way we do that is not by looking for more rules or regulations to build around our encounter. It's the simplicity of beholding. One of the things I love about the woman with the alabaster jar, you all know that story, don't you? How she wastes a whole year's wages on Jesus. I mean, it's outrageous. It's ridiculous. It's shocking. It's why people remembered it. It's why it's inspired as a memorial. It's why this story actually has to do with the gospel. That she's outrageous in her pouring out of extravagance and she lets down her hair. A woman was not supposed to do that in that day. It literally, the only time that a woman let down her hair was on honeymoon night when she said to her husband, I'm yours and only yours. You see, what was extravagant was not the alabaster jar, it was when she let down her hair. Because what she was saying to Jesus is, I'm yours and only yours. That's what was outrageous about that love offering. It wasn't the waste. It was when she let down her hair. Because what was supposed to be done in private suddenly came out into the public arena because she didn't care who was looking. And what I love about that story is that in the process of beholding, there's a divine exchange that happens. And when everyone's done that evening, when everyone's had their little gossip session, when everyone's gone home to sleep, there are two people who smell the same. Jesus and a prostitute. You see, out of our beholding, we begin to smell like him. Out of our gazing, we begin to look like him. 